0: You and I spit Hi everyone and welcome to Burn it All Down. Uh, this is Lindsay Gibbs here for your interview of the week and I'm thrilled to be joined by Ann Ortier of No Olympics LA. and thank you so much for being with us.
1: Thanks so much for having us, Lindsay.
0: So you are a return guest, and it's been a while though now since we last talked. I think you know pre-COVID, pre-postponement, pre everything. Um, so I guess I want to start out with just can you give a little bit of overview of what No Olympics LA is and kind of how you got involved.
1: Yeah, for sure. So, you No know, Olympics LA started in the spring of 2017. Uh we formed through the Housing and Homelessness Committee of the Democratic Socialists of America Los Angeles chapter. Uh and you know, there were essentially a few of us including myself who were already organizing um with other groups in LA uh, and were part of other organizations. Um, I'm a member of the Los Angeles Tenants Union. Some other folks were part of uh, LA CAN, um, who are based in Skid Row, and a few of the kind of original coalition partners and members of No Olympics. Uh, And through the work that we were doing in our own communities and with some other organizations, we we were just hearing a lot about how badly the Olympics were going to um, affect the work that we were doing, um, in particular, hearing about the impact that the Olympics had on poor communities, uh, particularly around policing and displacement. Um, You know, I personally, I was not in LA for the 1984 Olympics, but a lot of folks we organized with were. Um, Partners and comrades who who live and uh, organize on on and around Skid Row really pointed to the connection um, between police militarization and kind of the, you know, the war on drugs and under Daryl Gates, um, who was like the notoriously monstrous racist LAPD chief um, in the 80s. Um, So like leading into the 84 games, for example. So Daryl Gates, you know, because of like a lot of high profile, like well-publicized incidents around police brutality and like some incredibly like ugly, racist comments that he had made at press conferences uh, was a little bit on the chopping block in the lead up to the 84 games. And then as that came up, that shifted into like, okay, well, now you have unlimited funds and authority to do whatever you want to clean the city up. And so that meant like additional patrols on Skid Row and aggressive sweeps. That meant doing a lot of the stuff we see around like gang injunctions and, and kind of like the indiscriminate policing of, uh, in particular, like black and brown men living in certain areas because of, you know, quote, like suspected gang involvement, that kind of all started in the lead up to the 84 games. Folks who, you know, who were directly experienced the results of that have such a different memory of 84 compared to kind of the Eric Garcettis and the Casey Wassermans, the kind of like rich kids on the West side who were like, this was really fun. You know, Casey Wasserman got to run in the torch relay with OJ Simpson, whereas Uh, A lot of the, you know, Operation Hammer, uh, you know, war on drugs, you know, efforts by the LAPD to really to terrorize black and brown communities in L.A. There's like one kind of famous story about, you know, a SWAT team went to a house in South Central and used a tank with a battering ram to kind of knock down a house and found there was like a young mom with her kids eating ice cream. And that tank and that battering ram was purchased as part of the expanded funding Um, for the '84 Olympics, so you know that had been sort of percolating for a couple of years as Eric Garcetti was uh, was angling for the Olympic bid, and then in spring 2017, a group of us met in uh, in DSALA and started talking about what would it look like to create that. Organized opposition. Um, we had some contact with folks in, you no, know, Boston and no Chicago, who gave us some sort of background and advice on their successful campaigns uh, to kick the Olympic bids out. At that point, we knew it was a little bit late in the game, um, but still thought, you know, it was it was worthwhile. And even just the process of kind of like bringing together this coalition uh, of groups would be important. I think the most important thing off the bat was that. This was a no. This was not a make them better. And this was also specifically about the impact to to poor communities. So this was not about like the budget, basically, because all of the conversations in L.A. up until that point had really been focused on the budget and profits. And we were saying, you know, this is really about what this is going to do to our city. Like what what is the vision of LA that we want to push for in 2028? Is it creating a playground for rich tourists and, um, you know, corporate sponsors? Or is it having a a city that's equitable and comfortable for everyone to live in?
0: I know you all have connected a lot, as you mentioned, with organizers locally and with um, organizers internationally. And there was a trip to Tokyo um, to meet with No Olympics uh, Japan organizers. It was two
1: years ago, which feels like a very long time ago, and also not long ago at all. But I think first of all, you know, we were there really in solidarity with um, with the Hungarian no Kai, uh, who are the lead organizers in Tokyo against the 2020 Olympics. Um, And they're a group of folks predominantly and and led by unhoused folks in Tokyo. They're really, uh, really amazing organizers. And the kind of mantra was we we can still stop them. It was end of July. So the Tokyo 2020 Olympics were originally supposed to open, I think, July 23rd, 2020. So we were there around, you know, a, a few days before July 23rd, 2019. And then, you know, a few days after that, you know, I think since since every opposition group has started this campaign, there's always this idea of like, this is a done deal, and it's too late, and you can't stop them. But I think what last year showed pretty definitively, this is all made up nothing is actually set in stone. It's just like, is there, is there a force strong enough to to stop the IOC's plans? Um, but the Olympics are not, they're not natural. They're not inevitable, which is kind of the same, you know, framework we use to talk about gentrification, for example, it's like, that's kind of one of the biggest barriers is just making it clear. Like, yeah, these things are stoppable. It's not like the rain or something. It's like, you can this didn't exist at one point. It doesn't have to exist. It You know, it doesn't have to look exactly the way it looks now. Like this, these are all decisions that have been made at some point and they can be unmade. So that was one thing. And then another thing that's sort of wild to think about is when we were on the way over, you know, I remember being at the airport and on a plane and reading something. It was mainly got picked up by like Wired and publications like that, where it's like the Tokyo organizers pulled some stunt where they imported, I forget how many strains of like deadly viruses. Um, into Tokyo in advance to do to like prepare for biological warfare attacks and for possible like epidemic and pandemic situations to do like special drills I'm like this feels like the you know the plot of a Michael Crichton book or something like this feels like stupid and like something that could easily be harmful but then also it's wild to think like a year later seeing how they're handling handling the situation now like the number of athletes who are just coming into Tokyo um, you know with active COVID infections, and they're just kind of like, meh, or like, okay, well, you have to go, you know, quarantine, but your teammates who like, you've been in close contact with for the last, you know, who you were on a plane with, who you've been traveling with, like, they can all come in. And it's like, it's like, okay, what was the point of all of these biological warfare drills, if at the end of the day, you're just yeah, basically just like the stupidest, most immediate concession to like, well, we just, the show must go on. We need to make money. It doesn't matter if, if people are dying or if we're going to, you know, cause the super spreader event. And then the trip itself, you know, it primarily like led and organized by folks in Tokyo as well as other parts of Japan. There are some, a group of amazing organizers from Osaka um, who, you know, who were also part of that. We got to meet folks from Nagano, um, which also, you know, had previously hosted the Olympics in Japan. And that was really interesting. There were folks from Paris, there were folks from London, there were folks from Jakarta who are kind of staring down a potential Olympic bid, folks uh, who are in Rio. um, You know, there was a contingent who also went to Fukushima to see up close, you know, what that devastation looked like and, you know, the, the sort of really stark chasm between what the The media and the government and the Olympic boosters were saying in terms of like, these are the recovery Olympics and these are the Olympics that will kind of celebrate the end of this crisis in Fukushima and then being there and seeing like, oh, this is not even like remotely like recovered. People are still really, really suffering here. Um, And this is all kind of like a a bit of a Potemkin village set up to... You know, the Olympics to like, make it look like, okay, this is great. And now we don't have to um, give anyone government benefits who, you know, is suffering from thyroid cancer as a result of radiation. And we don't have to help people who have been displaced, find new homes or fix their homes or give them medical care um, because everything is recovered. And, and I think, you know, a lot of us too are experiencing that firsthand in our own cities through the, you know, with COVID, like this period that we're in now in a lot of ways where it's like, it's over and everything is recovered. But in a lot of ways, it's like, well, is it recovered though?
0: Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, I think there's been a lot of talk about people understand the push to cancel the Olympics in the wake of a global pandemic, or a lot of people do, you know. Um, And so a lot of the talk around the should this be happening right now is focused solely on the pandemic. Um, And I I do want to get to that and how Tokyo has handled that. Um, But what was the main thing? I mean, you just mentioned a lot of things. But what was the main thing that organizers were concerned about about these Olympics before the pandemic? Because I think it's important for everyone to know that, uh, you know, this organizing didn't pop up right when COVID did. Like, this predates COVID.
1: So, yeah. So, I mean, I think starting with the um, 2011 uh, Fukushima Daiichi uh, earthquake and nuclear disaster which was a a massive earthquake that led to a tsunami that caused a nuclear reactor to melt down in Fukushima, um, which just completely devastated that entire area. Um, Tens of thousands of people were displaced, still are displaced. The people who are still living there are regularly exposed to just like insane levels of radioactivity, you know, because of how the nuclear reactor melted down, like all of the soil In that area is contaminated with nuclear waste. Um, You know, the Olympic boosters also just dumped a lot of the remaining nuclear waste into the Pacific Ocean and the greenwashing, too, because at the same time that that was going on, you know, the Olympic organizers were continually promising, like, these are the most green Olympics ever, using, like, endangered rainforest wood to build new stadiums. So keeping in mind, too, with Fukushima, that displacement is a big part of that, too, right? Because, again, the people who who were displaced, who were kind of in this limbo of not knowing, like, where they were going to go, if they could come back, when they would be able to come back, and then people who didn't leave, um, who were staying, but who, you know, don't have the homes that they had, but don't really have anywhere else to go. So Fukushima was one big thing, and then Tokyo organizers, um, who again, you know, are led by folks who are unhoused, Um, and so part of what they were seeing was the really, you know, accelerated Um, policing and brutalization and, like, evictions of where they were staying. Like, police started clearing out those parks. And it all starts with the privatization of public space, you know, so spaces where poor people are typically allowed to exist and, um, you know, enjoy their lives uh, and eat and, in some cases, sleep become privatized, become spaces that are more exclusive and then therefore lead to policing. So as the Olympics were approaching, as these sites were becoming designated for tourist zones, um, police started coming in and really cracking down on, on poor folks who were staying there. Um, there were a lot of like media headlines about um, some individuals whose homes were demolished and who were displaced for both the 1964 Tokyo Olympics and the 2020 Olympics. What pretty much every single one of those articles missed that we didn't really get to dig into until we were in Tokyo was that it's specifically because those people live in public housing. It's because, and that's something we see in every Olympics too, including in LA. It's always the people who are displaced and the types of housing that are targeted for demolition in order to make way for Olympic developments are the housing that the most poor people live in. It's public housing in Tokyo. It's Skid Row in Los Angeles. It's in South Central LA in Los Angeles. It's the favelas in Rio. So those were, those were the issues, um, that that folks in Tokyo were grappling with. They also something that was interesting to see it like the there was a big um, sort of like uproar. I think last year when they were talking about allowing the use of Japan's imperial flag in the Olympics. So kind of the you know the the role that like nationalism and imperialism play in these games and heightening those sentiments. A lot of people were really concerned about, um, and that's obviously something to be concerned about here as well. Um, is, you know, we've seen such a, a really sharp rise in right wing nationalism and, and how these types of events can really heighten that, you know, and those continue to be concerns in Tokyo, along with the pandemic, like, how is the pandemic accelerating and heightening those in the same way in the US? It's like, you know, there's the pandemic, but it's which is, you know, a new thing, but A lot of the specific harms of the pandemic in the United States and, you know, in in the city that I live in, Los Angeles, for example, it's like it's just accelerating and heightening the inequality that existed.
0: Pandemics don't happen in a vacuum.
1: (laughs) Right, right.
0: You know, Liberty Mutual Insurance customizes car insurance, so you only pay for what you need. You know what? Honestly, that's all we really want, you know? Fairness. We want it in sports. We want it in life to all be treated fairly. And what's more fair than having you only pay for what you need. Way to go, Liberty Mutual. This message was brought to you by the Liberty Mutual Insurance Company. Visit libertymutual.com to learn more.
2: Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database, matching your job description. Visit indeed.com BlueWire to start hiring today. Just go to indeed.com BlueWire. That's indeed.com BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply, cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: So, I mean, obviously, COVID does heighten all of this, right? Like, the vaccination rates are very, very low in Tokyo. There are polls that say the public does not want the Olympics to be there. Um, Doctors are concerned that they won't have enough resources. And there's questions about whether this will end up being a super spreader event. Um, No international um, spectators are allowed but local spectators will be allowed in. Uh, There's a very strange rule book going around about, you know, not being able to cheer and not being able to do all these things, which, you know, seems we'll have to see how enforceable that really is. You know, the more I read about it, the more I get a headache (laughs) (laughs) and feel frustrated because it seems like they've had so long to plan this now right they've had an extra year um you know access to the best infectious disease experts in the world um proof of what sports leagues are doing around the globe you know right or wrong and yet um it doesn't seem like there's been many steps taken um what is the biggest concern on the ground from organizers there as far as the coronavirus is is it as dire as we think it is.
1: Yeah, I mean I think it I think it's very dire and like this has been a concern since the beginning. You know, you were mentioning like they've had this time to plan and what's going on and One of the biggest Olympic myths, right, is like when things go badly, there's always or or often this um, instinct, which makes sense to frame like, oh, this is a mistake or like they like, why couldn't they sort of get it together? That happened a lot with Rio in particular and the budget and the sort of like, you know, and even and I should say also the Tokyo Olympics are massively, massively, massively over budget like trillions of yen over budget. Um, <laughs>
0: so much over budget.
1: <laughs> which again, th- that is something that happened before the pandemic. But in light of the pandemic and just the massive amount of aid that's needed in order for a real recovery, it's like that becomes even uh, that becomes an even bigger issue because now it's like there is a crisis that needs to be addressed. And there's all of this this funding that's been spent uh, and can't be you know undone. And, and there's not p- political will to undo it which is like the real issue because the only plan that Olympic boosters and organizers have is to make money. So it's not that they like can't get it together or can't figure it out. It it is explicitly that they don't want to, that that is not their priority. And I think what's just sort of different about this moment than in past moments is Thomas Bach, who's the head of the IOC, said something about like, oh, sacrifices have to be made, which basically a lot of people took to imply like, you know, some people are just going to have to die so that we can hold these Olympics. Like people will get, we can't cancel these. So, you know, certain people are just going to have to get sick and die. And that's, that's how it goes. And that's, that's pretty much always what their attitude is. Like when it comes to things around, you know, accelerated um, and increased like displacement, police violence, (laughs) environmental destruction, the attitude is just sort of, well this is this is what it takes to put these games on so there're going to have to be sacrifices and normally there's less public outrage around that because they you know what they are able to plan successfully where they do put their energy is making sure that the people who are sacrificed are the most poor and the most vulnerable and oftentimes like the most stigmatized because these are these are the people that a lot of folks in certain countries and cities have already decided like their lives are less important What's changing now is that the IOC has just sort of broadened that out to say, uh, you know, now it's it's everybody's life. It might be it, unless you're super wealthy, unless you are one of the people who is in charge of this, who is like, you know, unless you are the the CEO of NBC, unless you're the president of the IOC. Like now, now you're at risk.
0: It's wild because I think you know usually when you say sacrifices will have to be made, it means like. Oh, you might have a little bit longer commute because like streets will be shut down. You know, like uh, there'll be some street closings downtown due to the event. So things might be a little bit more crowded, you know, Mm -hmm. like uh, that's what we're referring to. (laughs) But this is like this is a deadly pandemic.
1: Jules Boykoff, I think, has done a really good job of putting this into perspective. And it actually reminds me I was I was talking to a friend yesterday about Like, yeah, like, yes, the mall is open, but it's only 25% capacity. And I have a friend who, uh, who, you know, works at one of these malls and, you know, she said something about like, yeah, they keep saying 25% capacity, but that's like several thousand people. And that means that at any given point, there's like several thousand people moving around in an enclosed space. And like, maybe it's, it's less than it would be normally, but that's still a lot of people. And the same thing, too, with these Olympics where they're talking about like, oh, it's it's closed to foreign spectators and blah, blah, blah. And we've put a cap on this. And I forget what the – it's something like, you know, like 90,000 people, you know, are going to be coming into the country and from from all over the world. And that's still a lot of people. And as we've been seeing, even within just like the first wave of early arrivals for training, it's like a lot of them are infected. And that's something we've heard from our, our comrades in Tokyo is a huge, you know, demand. It's just like don't come. They're asking people like, not to come to Tokyo,
0: I mean, like you said, I just read, you know, from Jules Boykoff that, you know, there have been multiple. Um, people arriving from Olympic delegations that have already tested positive and the public has not been informed in mm-hmm. a timely manner of these positive tests. And, you know, I've obviously watched a lot of sports around the globe uh, over the last year, as have, you know, our listeners. And, you know, I think to the Australian Open, the tennis tournament in January when, you know, every single, it was a huge undertaking, but that was just with, you know, a few hundred tennis players and, you know, they were all quarantined in Australia for two weeks beforehand, um, not allowed to leave, you know, their houses. And then, you know, there was one positive on a plane that made uh, the quarantine even tighter. And then, you know, during the Australian open, there was like a few more cases popped up in Melbourne. And so they shut down, like no spectators were allowed in again. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you can say, well, should the, tournament had been happening, you know, at all period, but it was clear that they were taking it seriously and really having control over, you know, as much control as you can in this situation of, you know, keeping a bubble. And then you just think about something like the Olympics, which is, you know, uh, 30 times that amount of people, you know, 93,000 people coming in Mm -hmm. and there's just no way to have that level of control. There's just no way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We, we come up against this a lot, understandably, where people have ideas about like, well, what if the Olympics looked like this? What if they looked like that? What if, you know, I read some op-ed in the New York Times that was like, you know, talking to some scientists that it's like, if they had this kind of, if they, they did this, and it's like, that's all kind of like an interesting thought exercise, you know, and the classic one is like, what if the Olympics only happened in one city or rotated? But the reality is like, you have to step back at a certain point and look at the power dynamics and the profit motives at play. And it's like, None of these things can coexist with the IOC. Like, they do not care. They're not interested in having a a more thoughtful, safer Olympics. They're they interested in consolidating power and, and generating profit.
0: Yeah, and I think, you see, this is where, you know, why it's only governments who have kind of full control are able to host the Olympics these days, right? Because like the Australian public was just not going to have it, you know? Uh, one thing that almost just like bowled me over, um, and I think, you know, when we talk about how much of the Olympics is symbolism and is imagery and is PR, Who Thomas Bach, the IOC president, is going to visit uh, Hiroshima, to do a photo op and to quote, promote peace. What have you heard about this proposed visit and uh, what residents are feeling? Oh,
1: yeah, that's, that's gnarly. I mean, he, I believe that that's a visit. He has been scheduled to take at least once before, maybe twice, if I'm not mistaken, but his visit keeps getting canceled because of the case rates uh, in Japan. So that's like, again, another reminder that the people who are actually in charge of making these decisions, the folks like Thomas Bach and the other members of the IOC, the decisions that they're making affect people in a very negative way. And they are completely insulated from any of those impacts. Like Thomas Bach is going to be protected because he he can make the decision about like, oh, is it safe to go to Japan or not? And, you know, he's asking other people to make sacrifices, but definitely would not like put himself in danger. Uh and yeah, of course, people are upset. Yeah, it's just so completely, um, so completely don't have, so completely horrifying. Uh, and yeah, it's like the Olympics, like you said, they're about spectacle. You know, one thing that we've we've sort of uh, continually brought up is there's this, you know, a provision in the host city contract around, uh, it's called like the clean city provision, which is nominally about uh, essentially protecting the, you know, the advertising rights of corporate sponsors, um, but also will often extend to be interpreted and to create other local laws around making sure that the city is a uh, is a proper backdrop for, for corporate sponsors and advertising for the image that the Olympics project, um, right? And so that means removing visible poverty, that means cracking down on political dissent, anything that would sort of not help you know coca-cola sell beverages uh when nbc like you know broadcasts um it's like everything has to look a certain way you know and and with covid right now we're we're seeing this in like really stark relief too because that's also one of the reasons that and i think hopefully people are sort of starting to understand this is like the money is all coming from the broadcast and the sponsorship rights it's all about the the image and like if you want want to talk about like who's really running the show it's like it's nbc <laughs> and you know, the Rio Olympics devastated Rio NBC made a record profit. Th- those are pretty much the dynamics. And so, you know, to a certain extent too, it's like what Thomas Bach is doing is, uh, you know, is horrifying. People in Japan are horrified, but at the end of the day, it's like, if people are going to watch on TV, if it's going to create a good spectacle, they don't really care. Like, you, you know, people in Japan have made it very clear, like, like they don't want the Olympics happening. Um, but if there isn't sort of sustained pushback and organized opposition earlier on, um, the longer things go on, it does become harder. You know, things do become more entrenched. Uh, and and I think that's something like we're definitely taking to heart and, and keeping in mind with our own campaign
0: and kind of, you know, what things look like in the next couple of years. So, so let's bring things back to... LA. Um, What is the latest on the movement to get the LA Olympics canceled? What's the latest with Eric Garcetti, the uh, mayor there who has been um, behind them? And, you know, how can people help? Yeah,
1: so I think there's, there's been a lot of really interesting movement in LA in the last few months. um, Starting from an electoral standpoint, um, Eric Garcetti is out the door um, on his way. He, I, I don't know what the right term is, like slid his way into a position as the ambassador to India in the Biden administration. You know, it was, it was clear that he was after his own failed attempt at a position in the Biden administration, which he didn't get. That creates some interesting shifts and in dynamics, because I know, you know, one thing that we knew when we were building our campaign out was that You know, our city council is very powerful, you know, compared to sort of like, not not to get too deep into civics 101, but I do think understanding some of these things are, I think it's interesting. Uh,
0: I love it. I love it. Okay.
1: (laughs) LA city council is very weird in that we only have 15 city council members for a city of, you know, like 8 million people. Um, They are individually relatively powerful. They control every, like completely control decisions around land use. Um, so when we're talking about things like, you know, private, you know, enclosure of public space, private development, like they completely control that. The mayor is not part of the city council, like he's not their boss, but they definitely have like a sort of symbiotic relationship. And um there's a lot of like deal making that goes on, and you know, the, the city council in LA had to vote to authorize Eric Garcetti to sign the host city contract. Which is sort of the document that I that is now getting a lot of play because as people are asking why can't the Japanese government make the decision to cancel the Olympics? It's because of the host city contract, and our host city contract has the same terms um, that it basically puts all the power into the hands of the IOC. But yeah, so our city council authorized that, and you know, it it felt very clear, and in some cases uh, was confirmed to us directly by people working in city hall that you know the decision and the calculus for them to just hand over this blank check to Eric Garcetti to in turn hand over a blank check to the IOC wasn't because any of them are like excited about the Olympics. It was, it was a political decision based on like Eric Garcetti really wants the Olympics and we'll do this favor for you. And we're never going to be on the chopping block for it because no one is paying attention to this because the vibe in LA has consistently been since our campaign started and continues to be. We did, um, we did like our own polling a couple years ago and we just did another round a few months ago. Most people just have no idea that it's happening and like don't care. And the city council and the boosters, including LA28, they did like a pitiful brand launch in the middle of the um, uprising this summer. And it's just like, it seems like their strategy is just to bury it and to like make sure people just aren't thinking about it. So from the city council's perspective, it was like, yeah, what what is the risk? It's like, we'll vote on this thing, and if people hate it, they'll br- they'll blame Eric Garcetti because he's the face of it. Part of our work has been to sort of change that calculus and make their involvement more public and their decisions more public. Well, I should also say, first of all, we have some new council members, some, like, new progressive council members who got elected in the last cycle, so it's, like, a different cast of characters. Um, two of the council members who, who kind of rubber stamped the Olympic bid back in 2017 are now, um, one of them is in prison. The other one I don't think has been sentenced yet, but for um, on federal charges of like corruption and bribery, you know, so that was like another, <laughs> that was a little bit of an upheaval in City Hall. It didn't completely change things. Um, and one of them actually left his seat as city council member to go work for a stadium developer. So the the cast of characters has changed a little bit. The dynamics have changed a little bit. They're like, we're starting to see them shift in terms of the biggest thing that's happened recently is they had to vote to create the authorization of COPSEC, which is the official, one of the flags we've been raising since the beginning was around the national special security event designation of the Olympics, which um, is a federal designation that mandates the creation of a unified command between federal local uh, and state law enforcement overseen by and like it's coordinated by the Department of Homeland Security, which is just like which is terrifying, um, especially in a region like L.A., which is um, home to the like the most mixed status families and, and folks without papers of, of any other American city. And so the city council had to vote. They were voting on whether or not the L.A. City Council should like join that process They voted yes, which we knew they would, but two of them voted no. It wasn't a unanimous vote, which every other Olympic vote that's come up before city council has been unanimous. They've just been in lockstep about, like, this is happening. So we're starting to see some cracks. And then in the discussion, um, when they were, like, debating it among themselves internally, a lot of them were acknowledging the connection between the Olympics and policing. So when we first started the sort of mainstream dialogue in city hall was, you know, you're all fringe lunatics. There's no connections between the Olympics and policing. And now we've sort of entered into more of this territory of like, well, yes, obviously there is a connection between the Olympics and policing,
0: but, you know, we're going to try to fix it. That's awesome. I love that there's some optimistic news amidst all this terror. Yeah. Oh, and Before I
1: forget, I want to make one plug for our, um, we have a campaign called locks on my block, which is, uh, if folks want to check out nolympicsla.com slash locks, uh, that's around tracking Airbnb and short-term rental driven displacement, um, which we know is happening in cities around the world. So even if you don't live in LA, but are experiencing that in your city and want to check it out and share stories, um, we would love to connect with people anywhere and everywhere about kind of what they're, they're seeing around how, um, you know, like in L.A., entire buildings are being converted into illegal, uh, you know, short term rentals and, and basically like illegal hotels using Airbnb. And that's displacing people. And, and Airbnb and the Olympics announced a corporate partnership. Um, yeah, our, our hope is to be able to kind of coordinate and share what we're doing and uh, with other cities and, and learn what folks in other, other cities are doing as well.
0: Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us. It was just a pleasure to have you here on Burn It All Down. And we'll stay in touch, certainly, you know, throughout these Olympics and as we get closer to whatever is happening in L.A.